Hi, I'm Miranda Wright with HOWC Ministries. To learn more about our ministries, please visit us online at heartofworshipchurch.com. All right. We all have friends. We like our friends. Friends speak nice to you. But then some of us have a best friend. Your best friend don't always speak nice to you. Your best friend tells you what you need to hear. Your best friend is willing to run up behind you to step on the toilet paper that you're dragging under your shoe before other people see it. All right? So I'm going to be your best friend today. I'm not going to be your friend. I'm going to help get some stuff off of you. James chapter 1, verse 22. It says, But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own self. For if any man be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is likened unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he is. But whosoever looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deeds. What James is saying here is that the Word of God is like a mirror. We put the mirror before our face and it shows us who we really are. But if you just hear the Word and you don't apply it to your life, then you're deceiving yourself. It's like you look in the mirror and you see that you have dirt on your face, but you don't bother to wash it off. So you walk away and you forget that it's there and you think you're okay, but you're not. And everybody else sees the dirt, but you don't. So as long as you're reading the word, you're hearing that sermon, you're like, oh yeah, that's me, that's me, that's me. But you don't actually apply it to your life. You don't change. You don't take it to the Lord in prayer. You don't take it to the prayer closet and say, God, clean me up. I need you to apply the blood. I need this out of my life. Or worse yet, what a lot of people do is they say, oh, this mirror works pretty good. There's dirt there. Let me go get somebody else and show them their dirt. Put them in front of the mirror. Here's your dirt. Look, wipe, wipe it off, wipe it off. But you still have dirt yourself, so nobody's listening to you. That's why he says get the, the beam out of your own eye before you try to get the speck out of somebody else's eye. In other words, don't go trying to wipe everybody else's dirt off if you haven't even dealt with your own. The Word is important. It's good to know the Word of God. It's better to know the God of the Word. You have to spend time with Jesus to let him clean the dirt up. The, the Bible says the letter killeth, but the Spirit bringeth life. The Bible tells us what's wrong. The Spirit makes it right. Time with Jesus, with the Spirit, will help to fix all of the problems that it shows us. And it continues, it says, If any man be among you, seem to be religious, but bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. So he goes on to say, If you're reading the Word, but you're not changing then you're deceived. You're not actually saved. Judge the tree by the fruit. One of the fruits he's given is your tongue, your lips. If your tongue hasn't changed, if you haven't bridled your lips, if you're still gossiping and slandering and talking about people, if you're still hateful and mean and arrogant and brash, then there's something wrong. You haven't been saved. You haven't been born again of the Spirit. You're not being led by the right thing. It doesn't matter how many times you read the Scripture. You haven't been changed by it. 
Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted by the world. Religion in and of itself is not a bad thing. Counterfeit religion is, antichrist religion is, selfishness is, religions and traditions of men can be. Traditions can be good or bad. Not all traditions are bad. Jesus followed traditions that were not in the Levitical law, but they were traditions. Some of the, the Jewish holidays that scripture says he, he participated in were not God-ordained holidays, but were traditions. Not all traditions are bad. We have a tradition where we do fall for Jesus, where we do spring rallies. They're not bad traditions. But if you're putting your faith in those things to save you, or if you're doing it when God's telling you to do something different, then it becomes bad. It becomes an idol. Pure religion is this, to tend to those who are afflicted. Widows and orphans were mentioned because they couldn't tend to themselves. To help those who truly need. Now that doesn't mean you have to get taken advantage of and do things that God's not calling you to or be used, but have a heart that is more than willing to help where there is truly a need to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. But the premise of my message is this. This message is a no-so salvation. The Bible says to put the word before you, let it be a mirror, let it show you what you really are. Today we're going to see how to do that. Because if you don't know that you're saved, you're not saved. Because the Bible has a no-so salvation. We can go through all the scriptures, we'll touch on some of them, but it says that his spirit bears witness with our spirit. There's so many scriptures that says we can know for sure, with a surety, with assurance, that we are saved. So anytime you are in question, Take it serious. I hear people say, oh, well, everybody goes through dry spells. Everybody does. Take it serious. Those are red flags. Those are warning signs. Get back to the prayer closet. See where the disconnect is. If you're hearing from another spirit, if you're being led, if you're moving in unforgiveness or bitterness or envy or jealousy, if you're battling things in your mind, get to Jesus. He will make it right. Don't just assume that you're okay because you're still going through the motions. It said here you can read the word, but if you're not living it out, then you're deceiving yourself. Now, we don't have the power in and of ourselves to do that, but God gives us the grace to do it. You have to go to the throne of grace with humility, seek him, acknowledge that you need him, and he will give you what you need. The Bible says to approach the throne of grace to receive what you need in times of trouble. He will give it to you, but you have to be humble enough to recognize that you need it. And so today we want to look and examine ourselves to see if we truly are in the faith. Jesus came and he brought us the gospel. Our job is to preach the gospel. What is the gospel? The word gospel means the good news. Why is it good news? A big problem with modern evangelism is that people don't receive the good news because they don't even know the bad news. They don't understand that you are already damned to hell, that you were born into sin, that everyone has sinned, and in your current condition, you will go to hell, that there is a judgment coming, that there is a wrath that will be poured out on all the earth upon all the wicked. But God loved us so much that it was because of a deception that Satan brought in the garden to get people out of agreement with God, what he said, 
and into agreement with the devil, with another spirit, with what that was speaking, when they stopped believing what God said and started listening to what the devil said, they came out of agreement with God, fell into agreement with the devil. The Bible says, can two walk together except they agree? No, they cannot. So now they can't walk with God in the cool of the garden anymore. And now they're in shame and they're in sin and they're hiding. And there's a broken fellowship. But God loves us and he knows that Adam and Eve were deceived. So he puts a punishment on the serpent, but he enacts a plan of redemption. That's the good news. That's Jesus. The bad news is, is that because of the sin that we've already committed, we're already guilty of judgment. And if we die as we are, we will go to hell and face eternal damnation. But Jesus came to be our propitiation, to pay the price in full, as we talked about in Sunday school, to give his blood for us to be a covering, to be a spiritual husband. The Bible says that the husband's job is to cover his wife, to even give his life, if necessary, to love her. Husbands, if you want a good marriage, love your wives. The obligation of love in a marriage is placed on the husband. A woman's love will react to love. If a husband is loving, it will increase the love in the wife. That's why, historically, it was the husband's role to initiate to ask out first, to ask on dates, to come and to propose. That was all the husband's role because he's supposed to love first. And then her love comes as a response to his love. Her role is to honor, serve, respect, uh, reverence, and to trust him. Now, if he loves her, she will do that. And if she does that, he will love her. So it will increase the love and the respect. Uh, if you start spiraling in the other direction, things get crazy fast because you lose respect and you lose love and then it's hard to fix it. So come back in the other direction. Understand the biblical principle here. But Paul tells us that this is an example of Christ and the church. Marriage was given as a similitude of Christ and the church. Christ loves us. We love him, why? Because he first loved us. He loved us first, and therefore it causes us to react back in love. He gave his life for his bride. He loved us so much. The church's role is the bride. She is to serve, to submit, to follow, to obey, to do what is supposed to be done, to help to support the work that he's doing. All right, this morning, Pastor Daniel came in and said, hey, I need to go help this other church. Can you take it? The, the service here. Well, the Lord's got it. Let's, let's see what God wants to do. But there is a function in that. I am supporting his work. And for those who would say that it's out of order for a woman to preach, I would say, the Bible says to submit to your own husband, and my husband told me to, so take it up with him. <laughs> That's what a covering is. But we understand roles. There, there are roles in Scripture, and that's why the enemy works so hard to destroy the roles of the husband and the bride and their place because it is a similitude of the relationship between the church and Christ. There is an agenda and a spirit in the world that is working hard to confuse a generation on the roles of authority and of gender and to mess up their comprehension now, the devil has worked hard against the family already so that we have a whole generation who can't understand the love of a father because they haven't had good fathers. 
right? That's why songs like He's a Good, Good Father can break a room of 2,000 young people and they're all weeping and sobbing because they get a revelation that God is a good, good father because they never had that. But we have to deal with a whole generation of children whose parents tried to kill them, who said it was okay to, to sacrifice them on the altars of convenience. So we've dealt with that. But there is an agenda now to tear down the roles of gender, the husband, the bride, the wife, to masculinize women and feminize men. These things have a purpose, and it's not all entertainment. It's doing a work in the spirit because it's trying to break down people's ability to comprehend what Jesus is doing. He is the groom. We are the bride. He's coming back for a marriage ceremony, and we're supposed to make ourselves ready for him. There are roles that we are to fulfill. We have to let him lead. We can't just take control and do what we want and do our own thing. That's not how it works. So, the Bible says that if we love him, we will keep his commandments. It's much easier to serve someone that you love. Paul said that it's not grievous to keep Christ's commandments. If you love your husband, wives, it's not hard to serve. You will do things that you would hate doing if it was your job, and you will enjoy it. And husbands do things for their families. They sacrifice because they love. Love is a motivator. Love is, is an indicator of the spirit that is in operation. Understand this, that there will come a point at which the church has to demonstrate this message. The Bible says that in the last days, they will be beheaded for the testimony of Jesus. We read every Sunday the stories from the books of the martyrs of people, even right now, all over the world that are being killed for their faith this morning, we read the one about three husbands who were in ministry and, and they were killed and their wives had to come out publicly and, and make the proclamation that they forgave uh, the Muslims who came and killed them trying to stop the gospel and that they held no offense against them and for the people to pray for them. These things happen. They have always happened. They are still happening. That's how you demonstrate the message. That's how you prove the validity of what God said. You have to live it, not just read it. We can read the Bible all we want, but if we're not willing to live it, then we're not changed by it. So be willing to walk in those roles. Be willing to demonstrate those roles because there are kids all around you and people that need to see it. They need to see masculine fathers. They need to see strong leaders. They need to see sacrificial pastors. They need to see... Proverbs 31 mothers, they need to see selfless people doing the work of the kingdom. They need the message demonstrated. And how do you do it? How are you motivated? Oh, that's hard. That's scary. You mean I might have to die to preach the gospel or to defend my family or, or to be a covering? Or What is that scary? Take it back to what the scripture says. Perfect love casts out fear. We talked about it in Sunday school, but for those who weren't here, I'll give the example. God had kind of given me this visualization many years ago. It helped me to understand. The Bible says that perfect love casts out fear, and God showed me that in the aspect of if you're standing in front of the door to your house, and two feet in front of you, there is a ravening wolf, snarling, rabies, all of that, and you know the door is two feet behind you. You can just jolt in and close the door. You see that thing, a fear rises up in you. You run away from it. You close the door. 
Now imagine the same scenario, but in between you and the wolf is your little child sitting on the ground. Now there's no fear at all. Your thought is just get that child. So now you run towards the danger to grab the child and get it to safety. The love for the child has cast out the fear of the danger. Perfect love, when you truly love, perfect love is agape love because there are different kinds of love in scripture. There is selfish love, which is eros. That's a demonic, that's the name of a demon. That's where we get the word erotic from. That's where lust comes from. That's why any relationship based on lust will not turn out for good for you because it is being driven by a demon. The Bible says, and for the young people in the room, I'll tell you this. Paul said, do you not know that to whom you join yourself with, you become one with? Okay, that's part of the marriage. The husband and the wife, the church is the bride, Christ is the groom. When they are married, they become one. So now we are one with Christ. That's how we get adopted into the family of God. And in the Bible, it wasn't the ceremony that did that. It was the coming together of the two, the consummation of the marriage. Paul said that when you do that, if you join yourself to a harlot, then you become one with that harlot. So if we are the temple of God and the Holy Spirit lives in us, every person is a temple and some spirit lives in them whether it's the Holy Spirit or unholy spirits. If those two temples become one, then that means whatever spirit was in that person is now in both temples because both temples are one. So for the young people in the room that can understand what I'm saying, if you are in any sexual relationship outside of marriage to a born-again, God-fearing person, then you are opening your temple or your vessel up to every spirit and demon that is in that person. You get possessed immediately. Whatever spirit they have, you now have. That's why in every form of Satanism and witchcraft, sex is always part of their rituals and their magic because it lets spirits in instantly. I have dealt with it over the years. I explained this to a young girl one time years ago, and she went white as a ghost. She said, you know what? She said, I absolutely believe you because I have never dealt with a suicidal thought in my life. She said, but my boyfriend that I have now does. And when we started sleeping together, I started having these thoughts. And I've been dealing with thoughts of suicide. So you need to repent. You got to get it right. We got to rebuke that. We got to cast that off. God can deliver. But you can't keep letting the door open. You've got to deal with these things. So are you married to Christ or are you married to the world? We are one with Christ. We receive his spirit. But if we become one with something else, then we let that spirit in. If we choose to make Christ our spiritual husband, remember the roles, to submit, to honor, to reverence, to obey. Those are the, the obligations, the marriage covenant. We do that. But if we choose to do that to any other, then we come into agreement with those spirits. And that's how other spirits get into people and into churches and into congregations. And that's how things get very, very crazy. So we're talking about love today. That's why the Bible says to... Um, not hold offense, to forgive, to not let the sun go down on your wrath or you give place to the enemy. So if you choose to hold a grudge, you literally open yourself up to demons and say, devil, come in and have your place because the Holy Spirit does not agree with that. He, he won't be in agreement with it. Other things will come and it will start opening the door to other things because the devil, when he moves in, he brings all his friends. It'll start with something. It'll start with an offense or, or a jealousy or an envy or something. Well, he opens up the door. Now there's, the Bible says that where envy is, there is strife and contention in every evil work. So envy is like the first evil spirit opens the door. 
starts talking to you, you start agreeing with him. Okay, now contention can come in. Now slander. Now gossip. Come on, they're agreeing with me now. We can go talk about this person that they were envying. You know, all these contention. Let's go start a fight and get half the church against them. It lets other things in. And the Holy Spirit won't share his glory with another. He's out of it. You give place to the devil. Jesus came to redeem us, to cleanse us, to forgive us, to give us access to the throne room of heaven so that we can get the grace and the power that we need to overcome all of these things. All we have to do is humble ourselves, acknowledge that we need it, and ask him to do it. If we blame everybody else for why we're not where we think we should be, we're not going to get any help. We're just like Adam and Saul and all the ones who try to blame somebody else. We can't confess other people's faults. We got to confess our own. There is a judgment coming. There is a hell. There is a penalty for sin. There is a wrath that will be poured out on the wicked. Jesus came in the Garden of Gethsemane. On Passover, if you remember the story, he comes in, all the disciples sit with him, and they share a cup of covenant. Now, this was during Passover. There were four cups of promise. And they would repeat the promise and they would drink the cup. When you drink the cup, it was like signing a contract. It was saying, I'm in agreement. But also in the Jewish culture, when you became engaged, the bridegroom would come into the bride's father's house. They would sit down and they would share a cup of covenant. And if they both drank of the same cup, then it signified that she was in agreement. She was choosing to be his bride. Then they would become betrothed. He would go away, prepare a place for her at his father's house. Uh, and then at a time which she did not know, he would come back and get her with the sound of a trump and with an entourage, swoop her up and take her off to the marriage supper, get married, and she'd move into the father's house in the father's land. That's why the Bible uses the mystery of Christ and the church and the bride as us. We're the bride. At the Last Supper, he became engaged to the church. The disciples represented the church. They all drank from the cup of covenant. He becomes engaged. He also tells us that this cup is the cup of his blood and his testament. We understand that when a person dies, they write their last will and testament. Okay, That's what they desire to leave to their family. So at the same time he becomes engaged to us, he also wills to us all of his authority and power. But the Bible says that the testament has no power unless the tester dies. So he wills to the bride, he goes out into the garden, and he says, okay, God, I'll drink that last cup. Because in the Passover, there was a fifth cup. It's called the cup of wrath. It was a promise that for those who sinned, the wrath of God would fall upon them. But Jesus, now being betrothed to us, is our husband. So his job now is to cover us. So he drinks the cup of wrath for us. It was our sin, it was our guilt, but he was willing to cover us, to be a good bridegroom, a spiritual husband. So he goes to the cross. He pours out his blood for our sin to pay the price for us. He dies, and then what the devil did not think was coming, everything that was Christ was then inherited by the bride. That's us. Ultimately, 
his authority, his power, his kingship, his sonship, his, his place in the kingdom. The Bible says that we become joint heirs with Christ. In other words, equal heirs. Everything he inherits, we inherit. Because this is the thing. The church kind of separates itself from Judaism, but in actuality, the promises were given to Abraham and to Abraham's seed. The New Testament tells us that the word was singular, seed, to one of Abraham's seed. So Jesus is the only one who fulfills all the conditions of those covenants, so the promise goes to him. Jesus is the only one who's actually getting the promise. But because of what Jesus did, we get to share it with him if we come into marriage covenant. That means we don't get to play the husband. We don't get to make our own decisions. We don't get to bully and bluff. We don't get to do what we want. We don't get to get the glory and attention and try to get everybody under us. We don't get to build our own kingdom. We serve our spiritual husband. He is the head. We love him because he first loved us, because he did all of this for us, and we serve. We surrender, we submit, we do what he wants, and it's not grievous to us because we love him. That's the good news. The church is playing the harlot because they don't really understand the bad news first. They don't really understand what Jesus did. They don't understand their role, and the culture is fighting hard to pervert it, to make it seem really cool to be rebellious. We deal with a lot of people. We spend a lot of time helping people out of a lot of trauma because they were brought up under the teachings of the culture. That gave them bad parents, bad parenting, caused them to walk into bad situations, bad experiences, and now they're full of wounds and trauma and drama. Demons. Because they didn't trust the word of God. We can do it a better way. That's been the lie from the beginning. Adam and Eve, you know, I know he said that, but trust in God's love that what he speaks is really good for us. If you trust in his love, you will obey, even when it doesn't make sense in the moment. Faith means believing what God has to say. What Jesus did restored fellowship with the Father. It allows us to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. And it allows us to receive the grace that we need to obey it. It allows us to be a good bride. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast then our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmity, but was in all points tempted like as we are, but yet was without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in times of need. Jesus understands. He's a good husband. God is a good father. Adam and Eve's first mistake after their big mistake, but their first mistake with God was that they ran from him. They didn't run to him. And that's where we get off track. We run from him, try to fix it ourselves. Try to lie, blame others, whatever the situation. He's saying run to him. He can fix it. What Jesus did gives you access to the throne room of grace. No matter how bad off track you have gotten, 
he can get you back. The Bible says that Jesus is coming back with the marriage supper of the Lamb. The customs that I explained earlier is exactly what's going to happen. We don't know how long Jesus is gone, but he's preparing a place for us. That place that he is preparing is New Jerusalem. There are teachings, there are movements in the church right now, kingdom teachings, where people are trying to build the kingdom here now. They teach that that you have to get things right here now, then Jesus is going to come and inhabit it. We've got to take over the culture. The Christians have to take over the schools and the, the education and the parliament and the government and the media and the movies and all. And it's not wrong to have influences in those areas, but their teaching is that it's our job to possess those things now, and then once we get it all taken, Jesus is going to step in and rule it. It's not the bride's job to prepare the place. That is an antichrist spirit. It gets people looking in the physical, in the here, in the now, in the temporary. And they stop living for eternity for what's coming. They stop preparing for the bridegroom. A bride, as the day of her wedding approaches, will get more excited. She will try harder. She will diet a little harder. She will fast a little more. She will fix her hair. She will get the right clothes. There's no bride that gets lazier about her, her wedding, the closer it gets, except the church. A true bride is going to make herself ready. The Bible says the bride hath made herself ready for the groom when Jesus comes. We can have a no-so salvation. You can know that you are married to someone. If you don't know who your husband is, if you don't know who you're married to, you're not married. You might go through the motions. You might claim the name. But marriage is not something written on paper. It's not a membership card at a church. Salvation is not a membership card at a church. It's a relationship. There are people who are still in marriages, but they don't love each other. They don't reverence. They're too selfish because love is sacrifice. So today we have to ask ourselves, do we know? The Bible says we can know. It says that his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we know we are the sons of God. In 2 Corinthians, it tells us to examine ourselves to make sure that we're in the faith or to make sure that we haven't become reprobate. In chapter 13, verse 11, it says, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Love in peace and of God. Let God's love and peace be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints shall salute you. The grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the communion of his Holy Ghost be with you. Amen. He tells you to examine yourself, make sure you're in the faith, and then he gives you some things that you should be doing. Love, be in peace, be in unity with the brethren and with the body. Love is the evidence of our salvation. If we need to examine our faith, what we really need to examine is our love. It's a marriage covenant. If you need to examine your marriage, what do you examine? Your love. If you truly love, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you have a problem obeying the word of God, 
then you actually have a problem loving God. You need to take some time to spend to get to know him. You probably have a wrong concept of him if you don't love him because he's pretty lovable. So you need to fix that wrong concept. Get in the word, get in the prayer closet, get in his presence, get to love him. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, it says, And we now have and know and believe that the love of God that he gave to us, that God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in the world. And then he goes on to talk about perfect love. We talked about perfect love, um, casting out fear and all of that. This is very powerful. I'm going to just kind of run through because we don't even need to read it. We're getting the point. God is love. God is in us. Then we will love like God loves. God's love is not selfish. It's not hard. God's love is selfless. And it's about bringing the lost in. God's love is sacrificial. That's what Jesus demonstrated. It says that if we have that kind of love, we will have confidence at the day of judgment, knowing that as Christ was, so were we in the world. If we are willing to lay down our lives for the brethren, for each other, to get a lost person into the kingdom, if we are willing to sacrifice and give up, the things that we want to serve our spiritual husband, then we can have confidence. If we love him enough to obey him, and if we love others enough to want to bring them to him, if we love enough to live like he lived, then we can have confidence. We can know that we are saved because we know his spirit is within us. We can know salvation because we know Jesus, who is salvation. When they asked Jesus what the greatest commandment was, he said it's the commandment, he, he said this many times through scripture, that it's the same thing you had from the beginning, that it's not anything hard to grasp. From the beginning, God always said the greatest commandment was to love God first, to love others second, to put yourself last. If you do that, you will automatically fulfill all of the Ten Commandments and everything that the prophets told you to do. You don't have to remember the 600 and something laws that man made and the Ten Commandments and all of that. If everything you do is based in love, loving God first, loving others second, and putting yourself last, you will always do what's right. Love covers a multitude of sins. We talked about it in Sunday school. Even when you mess up a little bit, God's going to overlook it because you didn't do it with willful intent. You were moving in love because we all mess up sometimes. Every parent knows that they love their children, but they still mess up in parenting. Every kid knows they love their parents, but they're going to mess up in obeying. But when things are done in love, God understands and he will cover it. But when it's done in selfishness, when it's done in hard-heartedness, when it's done in pride or in arrogance or in your own agendas are trying to set yourself up for something, God will not overlook it. He will deal with it. He will deal with it harshly. When we look at the Ten Commandments, he said that even from the beginning, this, this was always the law. This is how you do it. When the Ten Commandments were given, he said that they left Egypt, their father's house. They followed him into the wilderness like a bride. It was their espousal. The Israelites then were the church. So we can look at leaving Egypt as us 
getting saved, we leave the bondage of Satan. We follow him out into the wilderness like a bride. That's like um, salvation. They go through the sea. That's like their baptism. The enemy is shed and they rejoice. That's like justification, right? At salvation, you are forgiven for your sins. Uh, You are brought into the kingdom of God because of what Jesus did. We talked about that earlier. At justification, Jesus pays the price. Uh, You are justified. You're moving forward now. Then they go into the wilderness where they follow him. That's sanctification. That's a process where they have to start shedding the things of Egypt to be prepared to be brought into the promise. That's glorification. Right? There's a process that the church has forgotten. In the wilderness, that was the courtship. That's where they learn how to be a good bride. But they've been in Egypt so long, married to sin and wickedness, like most of our children in our culture now, they don't have a good foundation. So God has to bring them through a wilderness to strip these things off of them and to teach them how to be a good bride. They go to Mount Horeb, where the Ten Commandments are given. This is their marriage ceremony, right? People talk about the Old Testament, the commandments. Oh, that was law. Now we're under grace. It was a marriage covenant. We're still under a marriage covenant. This is how it works. The law was not given as this is a law and you must obey. I mean, God didn't come and, and hit his bride over the head with a club and drag her off and be like, you. no. This was the wedding vows, all right? He says, because I rescued you out of bondage, this is how you show me your love. I know you don't know how to do it, so I'm going to write it down and show you this is what love looks like. First, you don't have any other God before me. In other words, you marry to me and me only. You don't get any other lovers. Second, you get rid of all of your idols. Okay, you got to get rid of your boyfriend's pictures too. Can't keep those. The first part of the commandments tells you how to love God. Love God first with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second part of the commandments tells you how to love his family. Right? Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't uh, covet or kill or rob. It's telling you how to, how to treat family, others, right? So love God first, love others second, put yourself last. That's what real love is. He's like, this is what it looks like. This is how you do it. Go do it. They failed to do it continuously. Those who get it right, they come to the end. God brings them through the sea again into the promised land. But that's our journey. That's the journey that we're in. God has shown us in the scriptures what love looks like. Now, then it was written on stone tablets. Now it's written in our heart because then we saw it written in law, but now we see it in the life of Jesus. He demonstrated it. The word became flesh. We see what love really looks like. Now we can better understand it. Now we love him because we see that he really does love us. Maintain the roles and love your husband. The Bible tells us in the New Testament that the word of God, the gospel, has not come in word only, but in power and in demonstration. So we go back to what we read in the beginning. If you just read it in the scriptures, but you don't demonstrate it with your life, then you're deceived. And you're not actually saved because you're not obeying your husband. So if he tells you to forgive, you must forgive. If he tells you to be kind, you must be kind. 
If he tells you to be patient, you must be patient. If he tells you to rejoice with those that rejoice, you don't get to be envious and mad and jealous because something good happened to somebody else. Because if you do that, you're listening to another spirit. You're outside of marriage covenant. You've actually walked away from your husband and you won't be protected from the judgment. We don't get to choose our rules. This is not a Americanized marriage. This is a Jewish marriage. And you don't get to make the rules. You have to choose if you're going to submit to this husband. He's offering. He has proven his love. He has poured out his blood. He has willed all of the power and glory in heaven to us. All we have to do is receive it. To play our part in the covenant. To be the bride and stop trying to be the husband. So, Lord, I'm not even going to go any farther. I think you've said what you want to say. We're going to close Today, go ahead and pull up 1 Corinthians 13. And we're just going to read this as we come to a close, Lord. We're going to keep it simple. Lord, as we begin to pray and to war against this um, counterfeit in the culture, we've taught it before. The Bible talks about something that the Canaanites worshipped called Ashereth. Um, She was the female counterpart of Baal. She is the anti-bride. She is the harlot. She's the harlot in the book of Revelations. She's the harlot all through scripture. She's Diana that was trying to persecute the Christians in the New Testament. She's Isis. She is Samarimus. She is all of those things. The culture idolizes her. The church has begun to idolize her. It happened before in Israel too. There were times where where God had to punish Israel. It says, because you're, you're baking cakes and bringing flowers before the queen of heaven. That was Ashtorah. But she perverts the role of the bride. And she tries to be the one in charge. She masculinizes the bride and feminizes the groom. Her priest in the ancient times dressed in drag, dressed up as women, Uh, They were eunuchs. They were surgically altered. They were demasculinized. There is a work happening in the culture. To counter it, you're going to have to follow the teachings of Scripture. You're going to have to lay aside all the things that make you feel prideful and arrogant and somebody and others are beneath me and I'm a celebrity because that's what she was. It's not what the bride is. The Bible tells us what the bride of Christ is supposed to look like. When Abraham sent his servant to get a wife for his son, the servant represents the Holy Spirit. The wife represents the bride. He went looking. He said, God, you choose her. You let me know. When I go, let her draw water for me and all of my camels. He goes looking for this bride. He finds a woman waiting at the well. Pastor Daniel had preached a message a long time ago about waiting at the well. The well is that place where you draw up revelation from the word of God. The Bible talks about Jesus releasing deep wells of living water. So she's waiting at the well. The bride of Christ should always be found waiting at the well. 
drawing up those waters of revelation, communing with the Holy Spirit, giving out that living water, making sure that there are others who are not thirsty and dry. She, he comes, he says, give me a drink of water. She says, I'll draw water for you and for all of your camels. I did a teaching on this one time and I don't remember the exact number, but a camel can drink like something over a hundred gallons of water. And he had more than one camel. You carry hundreds of gallons of water up a well by hand. She had a servant's heart. She was humble. She was doing her father's work. She was tending to the flocks. She was willing to serve above and beyond to make sure nobody went thirsty. That's what the bride is supposed to be. The bride is not a celebrity. The bride is a humble servant. She's not flashy. In fact, he had to bring her jewelry. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, as we come to a conclusion, remember that Jesus said that in the final day, many will come to me claiming my name, saying, haven't we done many wonderful works? Didn't we prophesy and cast out devils and do all of these things? And he'll say, depart from me. You are still working iniquity. It's not those who claim me, but those who do the will of the Father, which is in heaven, because if we love him, we will keep his commandments. He didn't know us. That's a, a intimate knowing, like a husband knows a wife. There was no fellowship. There was no communion. Yes, they did all these works, but let me tell you, the spirit of Ashtorah does those works. It's Jezebel was a prophet. There is false prophecy. There is false casting out of devils. There is something that will give you what seems like godliness, that seems like power, but it's going to come with a heart of hardness and control and manipulation and bitterness and wanting to be on top of others and wanting to put others underneath you and to be a celebrity and to be worshipped. It's not the real thing. You cannot judge whether somebody has the Holy Spirit by the gifts. Jesus said judge by the fruit. The first fruit is love. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it gives us some descriptions of what this love should look like. Verse 1, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity. The word translated to charity here is agape. In the passage before where we read God is love, in the Greek it said God is agape. In the Greek there were four or five different words that are translated to love, but they have different meanings. We talked about eros, which is a selfish, sensual love that's a demonic love. But... God's love was always referred to as agape. That is a selfless, sacrificial love. So here, when it translates to charity, though you speak with tongues, in other words, you have a gift, tongues is not the evidence of the Holy Spirit. Because here it says that you can have tongues and not have agape. In other words, not have God. God is love. God is agape. If you don't have love, if you don't have God, it's not the real thing. There is a counterfeit. He says that if you have tongues, but you don't have agape, then I am become as sounding brass and as a tinkling cymbal. In other words, a bunch of noise. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mystery and all knowledge, oh, I got a lot of revelation. I, I listened to a lot of sermons and read a lot of books and I can repeat a lot of things and I can even tell you some words of knowledge and some prophecy and even have all faith that you can remove mountains, even move in miracles. 
and cast out devils, because really when it refers to moving mountains in scriptures, it was talking about the casting out of devils. And have not agape, God, I am nothing. So when Jesus said you can prophesy and you can cast out devils and still not be his, you can move under other spirits and do this. But if you don't have love, if you don't have the right character, you don't have the right spirit. This is important to know so that you're not deceived in who you're following, but it's more important to know so that you're not deceived into what is using you. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not agape, love, God, it profits me nothing. Agape suffereth long. So this is saying this is what real love is. This is what God is. This is a description of the fruit that should manifest if he is leading your marriage. And I'm talking about the spiritual marriage. If he is the husband of your life, if you are obeying his spirit. Agape is long-suffering. Some translations change that to patience. No, the word long-suffering means the ability to suffer for a long time. Being willing to suffer to help bring others into the kingdom. Patience does apply to that, but it's broader than that. Because sometimes you have to be willing to endure. There are people who have endured prisonments to be able to preach the gospel to endure rough marriages and relationships because God has given a promise that that loved one will be saved. Be willing to suffer a long time if that's what it takes because that's what love does. Parents suffer a long time to make sure that their kids are in a good place. Agape suffers for a long time, is kind. Agape does not envy. So as soon as envy arises or covetousness, There's another spirit in operation. Deal with it. Agape does not vaunt itself. It is not puffed up. In other words, it doesn't boast or promote itself. It does not behave itself unseemingly. It it doesn't blow up and cause a scene unnecessarily. It seeks not her own. It doesn't look for what's best for itself, but for others. It is not easily provoked. can still be provoked, but not easily. God is patient, and we should be also if we have that spirit. It does not think evil, so it's not always thinking the worst of everything and everybody. It rejoices not in iniquity. It is never pleased when things are in sin or wrong, but rather it rejoices in the truth. It bears all things. In other words, it endures. It believes all things. It has faith. It hopes all things. It has hope. It endureth all things. Agape never fails. So what is agape? Love. And it's God. God never fails. Because love never fails. What you do in love will produce fruit. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. So don't idolize these things. For we know in part, therefore, we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect comes, then that which is in part shall be done away with. Who is perfect? Jesus. When Jesus comes, then there will be no more need for all these gifts. They're going to all vanish and fade away. But what will remain? Love. 
When I was a child, I spake as a child, and I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. What is childishness? Selfishness. Putting yourself first. Wanting what you want. When you become mature in Christ, when you become perfected in love, you're actually becoming selfless. That's what perfect love is. That's what perfection is. It's becoming selfless. Stop thinking about yourself. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. We're going to be face to face with Jesus. Now we know in part, but then shall we know, even as also I am known. So we're going to know him as much as he knows us, face to face. And now abideth faith, so we have faith for this. And that faith produces hope, charity, which is love. But the greatest of these is love. So of all of the fruits of the Spirit, of everything in Scripture that you could come to, the most important thing to have to cultivate to do is not prophecy, it's not tongues, it's not word of knowledge, it's not workings of miracles or healings or any of those things. Because all of those things can be perverted and counterfeited and the devil can use those things against the body if it's not rooted in love. You can use a gift of the Spirit to do damage if you don't have the heart of God. You can't wield the sword of God without the heart of God because you will cut people up. You will destroy. You will be a scatterer and not a gatherer. And you may even have good intents and not even understand that you're being manipulated by this counterfeit spirit. This is a very serious thing. It's happening in the church at large, and God wants to make sure that we are not guilty of it. So, Lord, we come before you today, and we thank you for this reminder. We thank you for what it is that you are doing in the body and in the nations. We thank you for what you have done to bring us salvation. We thank you for the blood that you were willing to shed for us to bring us into this marriage covenant. Help us to be good brides, to surrender, to submit, to let you lead. Lord, I pray that you reveal in every heart today any place where they may be guilty of being influenced by this Jezebel Ashereth spirit, the adulteress, the counterfeit bride the one that doesn't submit, the one that's full of pride, the one that tries to take control, the one that thinks it knows better, the one that likes to fight, the one that is arrogant and brash, that likes to put others in submission to it. That's not what real love does. We lay down pride and we ask you to be our husband, to clean us, to redeem us, and to lead us. Lord, many of us have obeyed that spirit, not even understanding what it was because of family allegiances. They were ways that we were brought up because of the culture, because the way we were taught things in the world. We think it's all right, but... That's why you bring us into the wilderness. That's why the time of sanctification. That's why you bring revelation so that we can be willing to be pruned and cut these things away. These things that you give us are not just for us to repeat for others to, to tell them what they need to do, but 
These are things that you give us so we know what we need to prune. Because you don't want us to have to face a judgment or any trial or tribulation without you as our covering. And you can't share your glory with another. We can't serve two masters. It's one or the other. So the altars are open if you want to pray for you or for anyone you know, for the nation, for the church at large, for all of those who have been deceived. Oh Lord, enlarge our heart. Help us to love like you love, to be more selfless. Help us to put ourselves in this 1 Corinthians chapter 13 message to see if it applies to God, if it's who God is and He lives in us, then it should apply to us. We should be long-suffering. We should be patient. We should be kind. We should be selfless. We should be all of these things. Lord, it's not easy, but we do recognize that nothing with you is impossible. We just have to come to you and know that we need it that you can give it, that you can fix us to take away our heart of stone and put a heart of flesh within us. To lead us by your spirit, to produce the peaceable fruits of righteousness, to help us to be peace, and a safe place for others to come, even those who have hurt us, to know that there will be a reflection of Jesus in our responses. And those that have hurt us, Lord, you say that we are to pray for them, not just to be an accuser of the brethren and... and try to tell you all the things they did wrong, but Lord, to truly pray blessings for them, to intercede, to war, to fast, till our heart breaks for them, that they might come to know you and your salvation. Oh Lord, save them, save them, save them. But before we can even pray for them, Lord, we ask you to take the beam out of our own eyes, to forgive us of our own pride, to build up the walls that the enemy would not be able to get in. Lord, we repent of following that spirit of Jezebel, that witchcraft, that control, that manipulation, that desire to have others underneath us. We repent of envy and covetousness, of not being satisfied with what you have given us, but wanting something bigger, grander, more, wanting what somebody else has, their calling, their gift, their vineyard. Lord, we repent of hard-heartedness, of being led to bring division instead of unity in the brethren. There was a scripture in my notes, and I didn't read it, but he, Jesus actually told his disciples, they will know that you are my disciples by your love. That's a no-so salvation. To know that you loved others as Christ loved you. To know that you're willing to do for others what Christ did for you. When you have that heart, you know. 
that he lives and breathes through you. And when others see that heart in you, they will know that you truly are saved. It's so sad when people are hurt by people in the church and they don't ever want to come and they don't want to do. And yes, we know sometimes people say that just to cover their own desire to leave or whatever, but a lot of it does really happen unnecessarily because somebody listened to another spirit and didn't show the love of Jesus. Oh Lord, help us. Humble us. Lead us. Be with us. Teach us. Fill us with your spirit. And let us do the work of your kingdom to be a servant, to be humble, to be obedient. That in the midst of what we are facing in the spirit, that the word comes not only just word, but also demonstration. Not only is this a call to repentance, but also a call of commission for those men in the body of Christ to not only demonstrate the true character of Christ, but to teach it to a younger generation. The culture is teaching the boys to be feminine. So God is asking the men of God, will you teach them to be masculine? Will you teach them to be like Jesus? And the culture is teaching the young girls to be rebellious and masculine and prideful and arrogant that they don't need a man. They don't need a husband. What it's really teaching them is that they don't need Jesus. So to the women, according to scripture, it is the job of the older to teach the younger. Will you teach them? Will you show them? Will you show them the beauty of fulfilling the role that they've been given to represent the church in the earth, to tend to the little ones, to be servants, to be selfless, to be humble, to be reverent. Oh Lord, help us. Help us to teach, help us to lead, show us what we need to do. Show us how to show them you. Lord, we thank you for the adopted fathers, for the adopted grandfathers, for the adopted mothers and grandmothers in the church that are willing to do this work. Thank you for the children that are willing to learn that are willing to humble themselves to learn things that their peers are abandoning. Oh Lord, strengthen them. We receive the commission. In the name of Jesus. This message was brought to you by HOWC Ministries. To learn more about our ministries, please visit us online at heartofworshipchurch.com.